Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to my time capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They can pick anything they want from any time in their life of any nature, but they must pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they wish they could bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the writer Dave Cohen. Dave has written for so many shows, it's difficult to mention them all. So here are a few you'll know. He's been writing links for the presenters of Have I Got News For You. He wrote for Spitting Image, My Family, Life of Riley and Not Going Out, plus dozens of sketch and panel shows. And he's written for loads of radio shows, including The News Quiz, Dead Ringers, Sunday Format and 50 episodes of the radio show 15 Minute Musical with Richie Webb and David Quantic, which won the Writers Guild Best Comedy in 2009. Dave wrote the lyrics for around 100 songs for the CBBC show Horrible Histories, winning eight BAFTAs and a Rose Door. His non-fiction books include The Complete Comedy Writer, now in two editions, Ready Steady Joke, and If Only I Had the Time, How to Keep Writing When the World Stops. His first novel, Stand Up Barry Goldman, came out in 2021, and the second, Barry Goldman, The Wilderness Years, is out now. But Dave started his career in 1984 performing stand-up, and that was the year he was nominated for the Perrier Award. In 1985, he started the Comedy Store Players with Mike Myers, Paul Merton, Neil Malarkey and Kit Hollerback. And as he mentions briefly in this episode, he also started the world's first Jewish heavy metal band, Guns and Moses, with Al Murray, Jim Tavray and Mike Cosgrave. And there's lots more where that came from. So hopefully we'll discover some of it as Dave Cohen tells me the five things from his life he wants in a time capsule.
It's very strange when people send you a CV, or in fact when I'm preparing the intro to these things. Right. Because us talking now, I will have just read out the list of things that you've done, mm. and it always surprises me. I always go, oh my God, I'd forgotten about that. That happened to me when I was writing it, actually, because uh, <laughs> I thought... I didn't want to put everything in, but I thought I'd want to concentrate on the areas that we're sort of most likely to talk about, really. So that's yeah. why. And then I thought, oh, gosh, yes. Oh, blimey. Yeah, quite. Uh, yeah. You do, don't you, though? Yeah, yeah. It might come up later, but I did just sort of mention that on Wednesday night, Arnold Brown had a sort of event, like a sort of chat show thing. Um, yeah. And... Um, it was a little thing he had, and there were quite a few of the old crowd there, but it was also, it was like a sort of live event that had been organised mm. as part of a Jewish festival, and then the festival got cancelled for obvious reasons, but he's 88 now, I think. Is guess, he really? I think, Lord, and he was, yeah. a, you know, he was a bit frail, but he was absolutely, quintessentially yeah. Arnold. Yes. Adam Bloom kind of interviewed him, so it was, it was sort of like a memorial service for somebody who's still alive, which was sort of quite, <laughs> there was something quite nice about that. I thought for a long time that we ought to basically have wakes before we go. Yeah. And I'm afraid it's all, you know, it's all happening more often now, these things. Of course. You know, yeah. so. Uh, Part of getting older. It is. Do you know, Dave, I like talking to writers and to, in a way to people behind the scenes on this podcast. <laughs> Because actors and performers and stand-up comedians, people can witness their work. Yeah. But in order to witness yours, you'd have to go through the list of things you've done and then sort of go, well, so what specifically did you write? Right. But when you've written a book, you can say, this is mine. Yeah. This is mine. You're on to the second, aren't you? I am, yes. So there's two, uh, the stand-up Barry Gold, and they are kind of autobiographical, but I, I, right. the, the more I do this, I finally got down to writing novels properly about three years ago, the more... Mm. I step away from real life and go into fiction. So yeah. um, so the books are the story of my performing days, really, I suppose. So the first book mm. is is starts with me as a teenager uh, and goes through to the, my sort of very early Edinburgh shows in the sort of late yeah. 1970s. And then this second book, it's, uh, so Stand Up Barry Goldman is the first book. And um, mm. the second book is called Barry Goldman, The Wilderness Years. Uh, <laughs> so it's about my, uh, well, it's about Barry's time yes. <laughs> as a journalist on a local newspaper ahead <laughs> of giving all that up and then going to Edinburgh in 1984 and it all starting to happen. So Yeah, yeah, that's you were nominated for the Perrier, weren't you? Then? That's right, yeah, yes, in yeah. Uh, 19, 1984. So it was, my, it was my first Edinburgh as a professional, but I had been up as a student uh, and the stand-up Barry Goldman book covers that. I think that was about the time that we stopped going to Edinburgh. Well, that's interesting. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because that's sort of pertinent to the first thing that I have uh, chosen so I mean oh, um, right okay well let's talk about it let's talk yeah. about the five things and start with number one well let's see if this you know what I'm talking about here because the first thing that I, I want to keep is called death on the toilet it was the title of the 1979 show by two Manchester University students called 20th century coyote ah, which yes. was Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson. Indeed. And so I was incredibly lucky at an amazing time, that 1979 Edinburgh Fringe, which I went to as a, as a student. And mm. um, I met Rick and Aid there, but I got very friendly with Rick very quickly. And we, we, we got very close at that time. And 
I went to see the show they were doing, Death on the Toilet, which was a sort of <laughs> joke about because uh, a couple of years earlier, Elvis Presley had uh, died. Uh, in fact, at the height of the Edinburgh Fringe, I was actually, that was the first time I ever went to the Edinburgh Fringe, it was 1977, and I went for three days as a student. And in fact, I got a job for one night working at the Cafe Royal Bar for some mm. reason. I can't remember how, but I was working on that night, and that was the night Elvis Presley died. And I'd had, right. I was, my mind was racing with this, having seen all these shows and thinking, this is just the most amazing thing that I've ever been to in my life. Yeah. So when we returned in 1979 uh, with a student company and some other people, and that was when I met Rick, and he was doing this show, Death on the Toilet with Aid, and it was at a converted porn cinema on the on uh, Nicholson Street. I think it was called La Scala <laughs> Cinema. And again, it was just, I could not believe what I was watching. It answered all the questions <laughs> that I'd been having up to that point, which is, I want to be a comedian. I want to do comedy, but how can I? There's just, there's just nothing like what I'm thinking about. It's no, right. there's nothing that's on the telly that's like what I'm thinking about. There's nothing no. uh, around. And it's just, it, is it just me? Have I got this really sort of odd notion of something that I want to do that's, <laughs> That makes me laugh and does make other people laugh, I know, because I've had a little bit of experience performing them, but it's just a complete sort of weird thing that, you know, nobody knows about. Yeah. And then I saw Rick and Aid and I thought, yeah, that's it. That's what I want to do. That's exactly. So you need a supporter, don't you? You need someone else. That's why I think those two, as performers, yeah. because they backed each other up immediately. They immediately knew that they thought it was funny. And yeah. in a way, that's all that mattered. Yeah. You know, I remember seeing them do uh, 20th Century Coyote, which is what they were first introduced as at yeah. uh, the comic strip. We performed at the opening night of the comic strip. Oh, right. And on came Rick and Aid and charged around the stage being the Dangerous Brothers and things. And you thought, oh. Yeah, and when they started doing Bottom on TV, I thought, ah, yeah. yes, this reminds me. And Rick was so, uh, I mean, he was just so funny, but you know, the, the, sort of the eyes, he'd open the eyes really big and you'd laugh, and then he'd open them a bit bigger. And you'd, what? <laughs> How does he do that? Do you remember that thing he used to do where he used to fold his ear up and stick it in his ear? <laughs> he had this extraordinary ability where he could take his entire ear and stick it in his ear roll. <laughs> then he'd strain and it would pop out. It was fantastically funny. The thing about getting to know him at that age as well, we had a, we had one shared interest. We were both very big fans of the uh, Irish novelist Flann O'Brien. Right. Who wrote um, the most famous book is The, the Third Policeman, uh, mm. which is a beautiful book. But then he was telling me about all this other stuff that influenced him. And he was he mentioned uh, Samuel Beckett, and it, that was like a name I'd heard. And I yeah. thought, Samuel Beckett, he's, he's sort of... He's sort of That's drama and serious and all that yeah. sort of stuff. And Rick's saying, no, 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 no. You've got to look at him in a different way than the way that you've seen when you've seen stuff on the telly or whatever. Just mm. look at the absurdity of it. We talked about all this stuff at the time, but also we had the shared background that uh, uh, they obviously had this as well, was punk. Mm. And really punk was... Punk was the answer to their question. They obviously <laughs> yes. thought, I've got a comedy, and they were, they were students together at Manchester, coincidentally with a couple of friends of mine from, from Leeds who I'd uh, grown up with, and they were actually in 20th Century Coyote with them when they were students, uh, Lloyd Peters right. and uh, Gary Brown. 
And um, mm. they obviously, you know, they were 16, 17, 8, whatever age, and, and kind of doing what you do when you're that age, getting together and making each other laugh. Mm. But then punk came along, and it was like, ah, yes, that's it. <laughs> we're allowed. Yeah. We're allowed it, to do it. And, you know, you look at the young ones, and it is basically... It it is the old order as represented either by you know the BBC seventies sitcom, literally smashed up by yeah. a and Rick seeing himself as the sort of artistic embodiment of it and it <laughs> punk just really for for our ages I don't know the class of fifty eight people who were so I've yeah. done a little bit of a kind of survey of this of sort of interesting that a lot of the people who were born in 1958, mm-hmm. huge number of them ended up either in comedy, so there was Rick and myself and... Me? Are you a 58? A 58 Oh, yes, really? Oh, goodness, mm. goodness. I suppose I had you down as a bit older because I associate you with... With Jeffrey and things with like Jeffrey that. With Jeffrey Perkins. Yes. No, I was the young one of the group. Ah, okay, mm. okay. Oh, that's interesting because there's Lenny Henry and uh, I shudder to put myself in this list, but, <laughs> but but also you've got this extraordinary group of people. You've got like sort of um, Kate Bush and Madonna and Michael Jackson and Prince and Paul mm-hmm. Weller and, and this extraordinary number of people who were sort of either influenced by punk or by the 70s. You know, we're going through exactly what we were all going through in the 70s, saying yeah. something's got to give here, yeah. you know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, Glam rock. Yeah. Yes, quite. You went, I, I don't want this. Yeah. But what that punk thing did then, it gave us all a sort of uh, anything can happen mentality. Mm-hmm. Hence, these two students could turn up in Edinburgh and do this show, Death on the Toilet. I mean... In every other way, that 1979 Edinburgh was an absolute disaster for me. It really was terrible. <laughs> I was so proud of myself. I had managed to get, I thought, the rights to Love and Death, two short plays by Woody Allen that had never been performed before. Right. And uh, I'd got this theatre company that I was involved with and uh, a brilliant, brilliant man who you will know, uh, Paul Bassett Davis who mm. ran this surrealist theatre company at Bristol called Crystal Theatre, really doing extraordinary stuff. And they, they were also a kind of big influence on me, and I got them yeah. to come up to Edinburgh and do their weird shows. But <laughs> also, we got these two Woody Allen plays, Love and Death, and they were going to perform them. And um, about a week before we went up to the festival, uh, we got a call from the offices of Samuel French saying, so sorry, you can't perform them. Oh, no. You don't have the right. So we had a week and Paul got, <laughs> Paul said, Oh, it's okay. So we had this sort of gap in this theatre. We've got to we got this we've got to plug this gap. And Paul said, uh, oh, it's great. Oh, my friend Patrick Beckers, he's a Belgian mime artist, really funny guy. He'll come, he'll he'll fill this slot for us. <laughs> so I was in every day at the Edinburgh Fringe, I had to be, and our venue was right next to the fringe office. There were queues everywhere. We always had a massive queue outside our theatre, two o'clock, half an hour before our show was due to start. And I had to go up and down this queue saying, uh, I'm terribly sorry, we're not able to perform the uh, Woody Allen plays. Oh, no. But, oh, and even before I could get the next bit out, they'd all run off. <laughs> There's a Belgian mime artist called Patrick Beckers. He's really good. <laughs> and he was really good. But <laughs> Well, one day you must take those plays back. That's what you should do. Yes. I'll come with we you. We will. We were actually in the same theatre as uh, Rowan Atkinson. So we were there with our sort of Patrick Becker's audience of three, then, you know, there's this sort of 
hum and buzz. And this was Rowan's first, you know, really big show, yeah. and he was selling out. And I think Richard, I'm pretty sure it was Richard Curtis with him acting in it. That's right, yes. I saw that show 25 times because I think I, right. was, I was operating a light because they were one person short or whatever. Um, <laughs> and it was the first time that he's reading out the, the register of names, uh, yes. that, that sketch, and the uh, big piano sketch at the end with the tails and the kind of mm-hmm. miming to the extraordinary piano piece and uh, yeah. and shaving, a lot of a lot of stuff that came into Mr. Bean and, and things. Quite, but, yeah. And I was watching this and going back <laughs> to my flat and then, uh, you know, kind of going up the next day and, oh, uh, no Woody Allen today, uh, but Patrick Beckers comes here. <laughs> you know, it was a re- it was this sort of horrible. You give mix. up in the end. Just, of it. Rowan Atkinson's round the corner. Yeah, uh, never mind. Yes, yeah. Death on the toilet. It's an extraordinary way to start, isn't it? And it was instantly recognisable seeing those two perform. Yeah, you were seeing something quite extraordinary, something that was going to change the world. Well, the books, the two novels that I've written so far. I mean, they are very fictionalised versions of what what happened, but. It's sort of a made-up version of the story of my relationship with Rick in those days. He was just an incredible person to be around, and I was so lucky to have met him at that stage. Years Mm. later, when I was starting to do comedy, and Rick was just a star at this point, but he was really kind to me and helpful to me, and he would meet... And I I just sort of turned up naively in London thinking, I'm going to do comedy and it's fine. And also there's this, you know, I know I know Rick, who's the, you know, the guy in the young one. So, you know, mm. he's going to sort my life out. You know, I'm going to meet up with him and we'll chat about the old days and, you know, we'll write together and we'll do stuff together. You know, and obviously <laughs> I was very sort of very quickly uh, realised that wasn't how things worked. But, but he was a man who once he liked you, he liked you. It didn't matter where you went or whether you became famous. That was not part of the calculation at all yeah i made friends with rick around that time as well yeah and we got on very well i think probably because he felt that he was he was constantly trying to corrupt me (laughs) which he found very amusing and i kept saying no i can't do that now that you mention it i think maybe that it was me saying you know let's meet at the pub and maybe it was, you know, meet at the pub was more kind of, <laughs> oh, I get to see my good old mate Dave Cohen from years gone by. But it was extraordinary as well because he would meet with me. I'd say, oh, well, let's meet and talk about things. And, mm. and I, I was sort of trying to set up, again, this whole spirit of punk. I had this idea and it was uh, to do a comedy magazine that was a sort of not like Private Eye, deliberately not, but it's kind of full mm. of stuff. And he came up with a brilliant title for it as well, which was Lies. So let's do this <laughs> comedy magazine called Lies. And it, we, we went quite a long way with it. And then uh. they start, we started to hear about, oh, there's the, um, and by the way, there's these guys up in Newcastle who are doing this little comic that, that they just sell locally in Newcastle. And they, they have these really funny cartoons and we should talk to mm. them. And they said, oh, well, actually... Sorry, we've just signed a deal with IPC, so uh, we're going to go. And that was obviously that was uh, Viz. But all this time, Rick and I, we 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 would meet in pubs, and people came up to him the whole time. Uh, he was yeah. so generous. I heard a really interesting story last uh, the other night. Basically, just Arnold doing his old jokes, which is fine because nobody has 
jokes as brilliant as Arnold as as no. was proved on 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 the night and things. But yeah. um, one of the people who was there was uh, Peter Rosengard. Oh yeah, Peter Rosengard was the man who put on the original uh, comedy store show, and he told the story of what happened. Was basically he put an advert in Private Eye saying comedians wanted for new club. And he only got two responses. So he was in this strip club in Soho, and mm. these two people came in. One was Arnold, and the other was Alexi Sale. <laughs> You'd think you would have to pick the wheat from the chef, wouldn't you? Yeah. No, in walks the wheat. Yeah, so this is just a very, very topical thing, but I will mention this because... Um, the new Beatles song has just uh, mm-hmm. come out and I was sort of effusing about it on Twitter as people do. And somebody said it was a feeling that somebody that you knew has come back right. to, um, you know, kind of have a conversation with you. And it's like that these people never go away. And, you know, in the writing of these two books, mm. as well as them being a lot to do with my family, I'll t- we'll talk about them in a bit, but, but they're also about the made-up conversations that I'm having with the, the made-up version of Rick. And yeah, it, yeah. It, it's sort of brought that whole time back to life for me in a really kind of interesting way. I think as we retell the stories of our lives, they become more interesting than they probably were at the time, which is fine. I think that's the way it should be. Well, exactly. I first had the idea for writing this in 1981, and finally, 40 years later, I managed to, <laughs> to write it. Our lives are a mystery, and yeah. the older we get, the more we're investigating them. I think it's because, you know, we're programmed to to understand the world through stories. And so mm-hmm. so we have to kind of work out, what's my story? You know, what's my yeah. life story? For me, I've been very lucky to actually, and I've written two of them there. <laughs> well, it's the best name of anything, I think, that has been put into any of the time capsules. I think Death on the Toilet. Oh, excellent. <laughs> you, excellent. You win. You win. But what a lovely thing, the genesis of this thing that you're now bringing to fruition all this time later. Yeah. Fabulous. Okay, Dave, so let's move on to the second thing. Okay, well, number two, and this is one that will be uh, of particular interest to you, I think. So number two is um, regional ITV Comedy departments. <laughs> so yes. I thought you might enjoy that. Uh, <laughs> so I, I grew up in uh, Leeds in a very kind of tight-knit Jewish community. And um, it was a world that was not really about comedy. In the same way that when I saw Death on the Toilet, I thought, oh, that's the answer to the question. Mm. But the questions were came up and I, I you know and again I'd heard stuff on the radio I I I was I was vaguely aware of the goons I loved Steptoe and the Sun and I, I you know I, I loved comedy but I didn't know anything other than oh you live in Leeds comedy is something else somewhere else yeah. another yeah. planet you know there's the mm-hmm. there's the funny Irishman Dave Allen there's the funny Scotsman Billy Connolly they came a bit later well, then there's these TV shows, these sitcoms, that, and there's old people laughing, and it's just another world, completely mm. um, another world. And luckily, my my mum had that sort of similar sense of humour to me, so we kind of bonded really over these uh, comedy shows. And then I sort mm. of got a bit older, and I started to notice that actually some of these comedy shows had the sort of the Yorkshire television logo before them, and that boom, ba ba. Boom, boom, yes. And now, rising damp, and I love these shows. But there was a, 
there was a particular show which really fired my imagination, and that show was called Joker's Wild, and it was hosted by our old mate Barry Cryer. I got to know Barry of a nice way, as you know, I'm sure every person in comedy you've ever had on here so <laughs> so far has said, I got to know Barry, because Barry yes. knew everybody. Indeed. But it was fascinating, because Barry was from Leeds, and I discovered later, we worked out, that actually not only was he the same age as my mum, or roughly the same age as my mum, but they were born... Uh, and they they lived on the same street in uh, wow. Hare Hills in Leeds <laughs> in the sort of early 1930s. And um, mm. I had this, already had this, without knowing it, this link with my mum who loved comedy and this guy, Barry Cryer. And this show, Joker's World, which was recorded at uh, Yorkshire Television, sort of quite near mm. to my school and things. But again, I still didn't make the connection that I could go and see these things. I never never ended up seeing it. But because it was Barry, Barry was just this extraordinary facilitator of people across comedy. And so Mm. you would have the guests each week on Jokers Wild. It's just a panel game as an excuse to tell jokes. So they'd have this week's guests is John Cleese, um, Les Dawson and Bernard Manning or something. (laughs) You sort of think, what? Who are these? What what some weird people? You know, I vaguely knew... Please, because Monty Python was just starting to happen at that point. Mm. I was already a huge fan of Les Dawson. He spoke in a familiar accent to me, and he spoke about a world that I knew. And actually, and it's interesting because we talked about alternative comedy, how different that was to mm. uh, the mainstream. And, and, and the mother-in-law joke is often sort of cited as the reason why alternative comedy was so brilliant and different, because it swept all that away. Yeah. But Les Dawson's mother-in-law jokes were, they were just beautiful and they were poetic. And the characters that he was describing, they were just instantly familiar to anyone who lived in the north of England. And the reality is that, in fact, what alternative comedy did was replace the mother-in-law with Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yes, I think there is some some truth to that, actually, Mm -hmm. yeah. There were some terrible people, you know, my mother-in-law and all those, uh, you know, they, they <laughs> yes. really were sort of pretty awful jokes. There are ways of telling a joke and there are other ways, aren't yeah. there? Yeah. So then you've got, obviously, off the back of Joker's Wild, there's a series called Says Les, which is like a sketch show, Les Dawson sketch show, which was very funny, mm-hmm. and John Cleese guesting in it. I tell you, sort of, you get this... You were watching these things. They're all recorded in Leeds. I could have gone and seen them all if I'd thought about it, but I didn't. But anyway, I saw them on the telly, and there's this, you know, Les Dawson acting with John Cleese, sketches written by Barry and also by uh, David Nobbs, another fantastic mm-hmm. writer who uh very lucky to have got to know in later years. But it brought to me the notion that actually, no, comedy isn't necessarily something that's absolutely far, far away. It's something that is possible here. And, and uh, as I mentioned, like Rising Damp, for instance, is another great show. But then there was Granada TV. I, I, mm-hmm. I think you were... The, you, you, worked there at some point, if I remember correctly, yeah? I did, yes. The title I had was um, was Granada Television Comedy Script Editor. Oh, so right, in, okay. Yeah, so in fact, I my job was to find people to write things for right. shows and then commission them. Wow, that's fantastic. That's lovely. Because, again, the whole sort of swathe of comedy and comedy drama, I think, grew out of Coronation Street 
I mean, it, it wasn't anything like what I grew up with, but no. but it was in a way. The voices were familiar, and but mm -hmm. it was just what kept me there was just the brilliant writing, such mm. brilliant writing, and the people who wrote those shows, people like Jack Rosenthal, who went on to write wonderful sitcoms like The Lovers and The Dustbin Men, and mm. and all these people subsequently have come through, like um, Paul Abbott and Sally Wainwright. They're sort of fantastic writers. Yeah, And it all comes down to the sense that, you know, comedy is universal, but it starts with you and your community. And, you know, it doesn't didn't matter that I hadn't lived in a back-to-back -back with a, you know, no toilet or whatever. Or there was a, I didn't know these sort of gossipy women over the fence or stuff. But the comedy was what mattered. It was totally a, a, a universal thing. And that's, I, I, I really wish that somebody... A billionaire, Elon Musk, someone or something decided, <laughs> I am going to make comedy happen again some way. And this is how really just go into those sort of regional places, really. And yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. It's interesting that you say that you grew up in, in a sort of tight-knit Jewish community and actually comedy wasn't part of it. Because my experience, and indeed example by the fact True. that you nearly went up to Edinburgh originally with a Woody Allen play, everybody that I know who's Jewish, they are very funny. In fact, they use comedy all the time as a sort of a, a defence and, in fact, an attack. But it tempers it always. It makes it much more gentle. Yes, that's true. And certainly for those first sort of years where I was growing up in a very sort of tight-knit Jewish community, it was very much, I think, and it was partly because of my parents' generation who, who had grown up and lived through the war my dad fought in the war and there's mm -hmm. the, the you know the, the kind of as the whole trauma of the holocaust immediately well not immediately but very soon followed by the the birth of the state of israel and the gratefulness of my family being in england so my family came over from uh, russia lithuania they fled really in the late uh, 19th century my great-grandparents paid someone to take them on the boat to New York. So they got off the boat and they were going, this, this is a bit weird. This doesn't look like what we thought New York was. And <laughs> people said, welcome to Hull. <laughs> That's okay. Whoever's taken the money just said, okay, look, we can't afford to take them all the way across the ocean. Wow. So for my family in the immediate post-war period of, of being Jewish in a small community in the north of England. And mm -hmm. there was this, on the one hand, this incredible gratefulness and, and, and pleasure at the tolerance that they were receiving, but then also mm -hmm. a sense of, we don't want to make a fuss. Yeah. Which is a tricky thing if you're called Cohen and you've got a very big <laughs> nose. Um, so, uh, is it a book that you wrote or a, or a play that travels with my anti-Semitism? It was a BBC Radio 4 series that I Was made. It? What yeah. a fantastic title, Dave. Oh, thank you. Travels <laughs> with my anti-Semitism. It made me chuckle immediately, but also, if anything's going to draw you in, that is. So that was a show I wrote, uh, a series I wrote for, for Radio 4. Uh, and again, it was sort of fictionalised versions of, of, of various things that had, that had gone on, really. Lovely. Well, OK, so, yeah, regional television. Let's put that into the time capsule as your are Good. Fantastic. Let's move on to number three. OK, before Dave tells us the rest of the things he'd like to have in his time capsule, we have to take a short ad break. We'll be back after we've broken some. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back. You're just in time to hear the second part of my time capsule with the writer and novelist Dave Cohen. So that's lucky, isn't it? See you at the end. Okay, so number three uh, is a is a, a person, actually, it's any person, Linda Smith, comedian, a very close friend, and all-round wonderful human being. Mm, well, lucky Who, you. Yes. A brilliant comedian she was. Brilliant, and, you know, left us tragically early. She was about um, 48, I think, just yeah. 48 when she died. And I first met Linda when I was performing regularly as a stand-up in the 1980s, mm. and we were, we, uh, were doing a gig in uh, Sheffield, and she was doing a double act with uh, another woman called um, Anne Lavelle. Again, it was one of those, not quite a death on the toilet moment, but it was certainly, this is funny. Uh, you yes. know, here's somebody who's really funny. And we were there for sort of two nights, so we met them and got on very well. And, and, mm. and the sort of friendship thing began then, really. So that was great. And I said to her, you know, are you, are you going to come to London and do stand-up comedy? She said, no, nah, no, nah, I live in Sheffield. I'm not, uh, you know. <laughs> so she carried on. You know, she stayed in Sheffield. And, and occasionally I would go up and do gigs and we'd meet and chat and things. And she'd occasionally come down and do do comedy. She'd try and then she'd sort of, something that, you know, you couldn't just really kind of commute and do stand-up. Well, also at the time, female comedians were rare. Yeah, I mean, this is a really uh, interesting point because um eventually so what happened was um various shows that started at the comedy store some more successful than others but uh mm. i was involved in 1985 in the uh starting up the, the, the comedy store players with uh, uh yeah mike myers i don't know whatever happened to him and uh, <laughs> no <laughs> paul merton and, uh, and josie and neil malarkey as well wasn't it neil malarkey and kit hollerback mm. yeah Neil and Mike, Malarkey and Myers, were performing at this obscure bar 
in mm-hmm. a called McNally's Bar off the main drag of the fringe and getting audiences of five people or whatever. So their, their show finished and I was doing a stand-up show. The next show on was Kit Hollaback and Paul Merton, who was still Paul Martin at that point. That's right, yeah. So we had this period of about 15 minutes every night where they came off and we were not going on. So and we just met in the bar and we established various things. So uh, principally that Mike had spent a lot of time in Canada working, doing improvisation. And mm. Kit had, it was from San Francisco, had also done improvisation. As far as we knew, improvisation was this sort of weird actor thing where, you know, you're kind of, um, you, you do trust exercises and you <laughs> yes. fall back and someone catches you. Let's explore some emotions. Yeah, it's all that. And I said, no, 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 it's not that at all. This, this, is, this, is all, this is all comedy, you know. And so we said, okay, let's do an improvised show. You know, show us what it is, Kit and Mike. So we booked this show. It was like one o'clock in the morning at some uh, a place. Uh, I remember it was called the Southside Youth Club. It's been, it's been knocked down now. <laughs> Almost immediately after the show, I heard. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so we did the Comedy Store Players. But then... In 1990, I was involved in a show uh, called The Cutting Edge, which was another comedy store show. I wasn't mm. one of the originals, but I was invited in. And, you know, topical comedy at the time, they were saying, oh, the problem is uh, there aren't any funny women, you know, doing topical comedy. And I said, oh, well, funnily enough, there is actually. And I, I said, you know, there's Linda up in Sheffield. Let's go. Can we get Linda to, yeah, can we persuade Linda to come down? So we did, and you know, so she started to do the cutting edge show, but it was it was very difficult because she was commuting down from Sheffield every time. So she'd do the show, and then she'd stay at my place, and then she'd go back the next morning. So around this time, when we both, you know, and we were both sort of friends anyway at this point, and then both of our mothers died at that's pretty much within the same sort of time with each other. Linda, another. 1958 or so we were 32 33 and we both lost our mothers and so this bond that's kind of came through so so she would come and stay at my place and we just we we do the show and then we sort of talk from these completely different backgrounds her partner was uh, jewish north london jewish so she kind of she sort of got me I mean, it was a hard time for both of us, and we were both grieving and doing comedy at the same time, and it was just a kind of really, it's just, just a very special time, really, for me, I think, and that, that mm. we, we became very close, and then over the time, she became more successful, and I started writing for a News Quiz, and this is six years later, 1996, 1997, and... John Rolfe is the producer, and the same thing you said. Do you know any funny women? I said, look, you've got to get Linda. Linda is, Mm. she's brilliant, you know, she's topical and she's brilliant. I had no notion at that point that she would be any, I said, you know, she'll come up with good jokes. (laughs) I knew that she would come up with good jokes, but then she didn't just come up with good jokes. She just was a fantastic listener and then a, a you know, a responder. And I mean, her and Jeremy Hardy and probably Andy Hamilton absolutely yeah. changed the nature of that program, didn't they? They did. And that was the great time that I was very, very fortunate to be writing about. I'm very proud to have been, you know, I really sort of pushed for Linda to be on the show. And I think what was great, yeah, as you say, it was Jeremy and uh, Linda and Andy were the regulars. So then there were some people, other people around, like, you know, Alan Corum was still a mainstay and Francis Ween. So, so, but like you say, those three, the thing about radio, as we know, uh, the voice is everything. And Linda's voice 
was just not a voice that you heard on Radio 4. <laughs> no. And uh, she went on to do A Brief History of Time Wasting, which was a mm -hmm. yeah, lovely show, very funny lovely. show. And um, I think that she, even more than so, you know, Andy and Jeremy, who also did obviously have very distinctive voices, but she brought something new. She was like a sort of injection, I think, to Radio 4 at that time when mm. it could have become, you know, sort of sleepy, sort of, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think of her as a forerunner of Sean Locke on 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown. His performance on that, yeah. it always reminded me a bit of Linda's performance, of the way she delivered jokes. Yeah. And in fact, he, he was very successful doing his radio show, 15 mm. Stories High, which became the TV show. And what was really interesting as well about Linda was that, you know, she was very, very radical left-wing, as many of us were from that era. But her audience, her Radio 4 audience, and, and this, I remember her being amazed about this. She was doing news quiz, and... She said, someone had organised a tour for her. And she said, and, and she said, and I went to Norwich or somewhere. She said, and, you know, there were, there were 800 people in the audience. And, and, mm. and it, I thought, yeah, well, you know, of course. Yeah. You don't realise when you're sitting in a studio and there's 200 people there and it's like doing a gig and you think, okay, I've made them laugh and then they've gone away. That's the end of the gig. But she was just resonating with Middle England, really. And, yeah. And again, I think it comes back to everything we've been talking about today, which mm. is that comedy just doesn't have those barriers. Comedy just doesn't have those boundaries. It touches everybody. Yeah, it's a lovely thing. What a fantastic woman. Yeah. I'm, really I'm quite interested in the phrase you used earlier on, Dave, and this may take us into an area that you don't want to talk about, which is that you said she got me because she knew somebody who was Jewish, uh, unlike those people who don't know Jewish people. And I... I find it hard to believe that anybody doesn't know somebody who's Jewish. I think that the Jewish community in Britain is so integrated generally that you are bound to have Jewish friends. I can't understand why people don't, which is why I'm always so shocked at the clear anti-Semitism that there is still in this country. Well... In the words of a sort of Radio 4 presenter, you've segued us very nicely into uh, number four on my ah, list. have I indeed. Um, okay. Which, uh, people would think, now we're going to have to make clear that nobody sends me the details of what they're no, going to talk about. That's so, the amazing... Uh, I don't know if you don't mind me mentioning this at this point, because I've, I've listened to the show and I'm sort of wanting to be doing podcasts at this point. I just thought, oh, I'd love to do this show. It sounds great. And uh, a, lot of my, a lot of my friends and people have done it. Mm. And I thought, you know, and... Michael's such a great host. He must do so much research beforehand. And so we, we, we spoke. Well, we as said, you yeah. know, I only yeah. sent you the Zoom link about three minutes before we actually exactly. started. So I'm useless. But before that, and I was saying, and then I thought about what are my things I want to choose? And I said, okay, so the email exchange before that, and I said, so presumably you need to know ahead of time what we're talking about so you can kind yeah. of gen up and think. And when you got back and just said, no, 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 I like it to be a surprise. I thought, yeah. bloody hell. You know, I've listened to you <laughs> talking to people across whole areas of 
people that I've worked with, so particularly uh, like uh, John Dowie, who's a very good friend, uh, mm. uh, uh, Larry Ricard through the sort of horrible histories link, yeah. and and just uh, and each time I thought, God, Michael's really. He must spend hours jenning up on this. He studied this area. I think that people don't notice the number of times I say, I don't know what that is, explain it to me. Okay, Uh, yeah. And I think that actually you miss it. You don't notice it. So once people have explained it, I go, oh, I see. And it's a bit like this. And then I can have a conversation with people about it. But I really don't have this this gargantuan breadth (laughs) of knowledge. (laughs) But this is, before I answer your question fully Mm -hmm. about that, uh, interestingly, I've written a lot over the years with uh, Pete Sinclair, who is a very funny comedy writer, I'm sure you know. Uh, He's written sitcoms with Jack D and has written on every panel show ever made in the history of the world. You know, very funny writer. And when Pete first got to know me in the early 80s, when we've both sort of arrived at weekending on the Radio 4 show, he didn't even know that the name Cohen was a Jewish name. (laughs) And people are surprised when they find out what percentage of the population in Britain do you think is Jewish? Uh, So 60 million population, well, a million, two million. And it's like, no, it's about 180,000, you know. it's like Is that all it is? It's tiny, yeah. Wow. It's really, really tiny. Well, how impressive. The people seeing something sinister in it, in a way, or, you know, it's quite astonishing to me, rather than being impressed by it, by going, well, look how many Jewish people have influenced the world of comedy, influenced the world of finance, influenced the world of politics, and are right in the centre of these things. I mean, surely that's something to admire rather than to fear. You'd hope so. <laughs> you would, that's, wouldn't you? That's what I hope. And, you know, even this idea that we control the media, you know, I wish that was true. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I know. <laughs> and if I can quote you know, one of my all-time favourite stand-up lines, which was from Arnold Brown, which came up a couple of times at this chat show thing he did, which is, uh, I'm Scottish and Jewish. That's two racial stereotypes for the price of one. <laughs> which just on so yeah. many levels is just the most perfect joke yeah you know yes. and and you know once upon a time somebody knew a scotsman who was being careful with his money and somebody knew a very successful jewish businessman it's how people perceive the world you know yeah yeah the idea of accusing the Jewish community of being very successful and yet keeping it to themselves, as it were. You know, this idea of hmm. hoarding or only looking after their own. And yet, you won't let them be part of society without, in a way, pointing it out and criticising them. Yeah. What else do people do in those circumstances, yeah. apart from gather people around them who they feel safe with? Mm. So this brings us very nicely to number four, and we Mm. haven't planned this at all, but partly to answer your question of what is it about Jews. um, So number four is the producers. Ah. Being as I was Cohen with the big nose, you know, the the Jewish thing was was a big thing. And it was always a very big thing for me because Mm. in 1967 in Israel, there was this war the six-day war and i was i was eight years old when that happened so i I didn't have a kind of understanding but i did know that it was obviously a big deal because family and friends and people everybody all the parents were talking in voices that i hadn't heard before there was Mm -hmm. a kind of anxiety to it there was a sort of murmured discussions when i kind of came down you know there was like stuff they didn't want us to hear and this is like day one and day two of the war. It's because they called the Six Day War, and it, and and it ended very quickly because the, the Israeli military, mm. so Egypt sent tanks in through the Sinai Desert, and the Israeli military pushed them back, and they won the victory, and it was a glorious time. 
everybody was happy and you know obviously we were jewish and we were english we weren't dancing in the streets but we were no. you know we were quietly celebrating with a glass of water or whatever mm. so i had that kind of memory about about that time that being jewish was a fantastic thing and and also at the time because England had won the World Cup in 1966, and so with a player called Cohen, there was yes, George, no yeah. relation, um, <laughs> but there were these German baddies from my history that I'd grown up, and we beat Germany in the World Cup, and then the next year there were these other baddies in the Middle East, and we, the Jews, beat them. So our English Jew, I had this identity that was coming through, and uh, sort of great pride and everything. Yeah. I wish I could have caught that moment and kept it for the, forever, yeah. but of course, yeah. nothing lasts forever. And by the time I was a stroppy teenager, uh, 1973, time of the Yom Kippur War, and that mm. was a very different situation. By now, there had been a lot of very difficult terrorist attacks on Jews. I mean, been, a lot of Jews have been killed. There have been planes hijacked and things like that. And then there was, yeah. from the Lebanon and uh, the north, the Golan Heights of Israel were attacked. And this wasn't a glorious war at all. This was the first time that Israel was seen as not weak, but certainly vulnerable. And I was a teenager, and my parents obviously were dealing with stroppy teenagers, uh, as you mm. do at that time. And so there was a lot of this stuff going on, and they would mention, yeah, you have to support Israel because of the Holocaust. And I was like, yeah, but you know, what about the way that they made the Palestinians flee their hand? These are conversations that were happening 50 years ago. They're exactly yeah, yeah. the same conversations we're having now. And again, mm. as I was saying earlier, this thing about comedy, there's... there's Things are funny. It's funny being Jewish. And, and and this was when I was starting to come across Woody Allen. And I was reading about Lenny Bruce as well at the time, who mm -hmm. wasn't known at all in Britain. So I was finding out, oh, that's, just, that's funny. It's all fu that's funny. And no, you can't be funny. You cannot be funny about the Holocaust. It's not a subject for comedy. Mm. And then I saw the producers. <laughs> I was about <laughs> 15 years old, and it was a Sunday afternoon on telly. And... I just, I can still see this moment. I can see my 15-year-old self in our living room watching the producers, <laughs> literally rolling on the ground, clutching my sides in agony and laughing at springtime for hit. I just thinking, this isn't just funny, haha, <laughs> this is funny. This, my, my whole body is just exploding at, oh, my God, there's people dressing up as Hitler's. And, and so, oh, he's too good, he's too good. And then this other guy comes on and he's terrible. And then it's, that's our Hitler for a 15-year-old Jew in Leeds. Mm -hmm. This is just like, and it's sort of interesting that, you know, actually in recent years I've been teaching comedy writing. I've written a couple of books about how to write comedy. And one of the things people ask when they want to be comedy writers or any sort of writer, they say, well, how do you find your voice? And mm. it's one of those really impossible to answer questions. You know, your what is your comedy voice? And mm -hmm. you just have to sort of keep writing and writing and writing to find out. But it wasn't really until I wrote this recent book, I was thinking again about Mel Brooks and the producers. And actually mm -hmm. I was thinking, I've been doing this 35 years and I'm still not sure what my voice is. It's just a Jewish bloke trying to make sense of the misery of the world. And I thought, it's Mel Brooks. My, I'm trying to be Mel Brooks. I don't have a voice. <laughs> it's not a bad ambition. Yeah. 
And in fact, I was very, very lucky because uh, years, years later, my wife and I, we'd arranged before we had kids, we got to go and have a, a little holiday trip to New York. And I just knew we have got to go and see that show. Mm. on Broadway and we'd had to stand in a queue and it was like a massive hit by the time we got there. It had only been mm. going about three or four weeks mm. and already it was a hit and everybody was queuing around the block. And so we had to queue and queue and queue to get our tickets and we got these two restricted view seats. And so we got to see the producers with uh, Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane in the original version and it was just perfect. For me, it's one of the most perfect experiences. It was like, ah, now, this is really interesting. This is the most brilliant thing that had a real effect on my life. And mm. it's a musical and it's comedy and I write songs. Yes. And actually, my career after that, the next 20 years of that was all about writing songs. And I yes. hadn't written songs before. At one point, we had a Jewish heavy metal band on the comedy circuit, which we called uh, <laughs> Guns and Moses. Guns and Moses is genius. That was weird. That was with Al Murray on drums, the pub Al landlord. Al Murray on drums. You know, yeah. Fantastic drummer. Um, and uh, after the producers, and then uh, it was one of, again, these sort of lucky things that happened. So Richie Webb, who, who writes all the music for Horrible Histories, and he was working with uh, David Quantic on some radio stuff and songs, and they'd had this sort of vague idea, 15-minute musical, and um, basically they spent years working. And I came in, <laughs> got a commission, and we, we wrote 50 of these 15-minute musicals. Amazing. And then off the back of that, so Richie got asked to do the Horrible Histories. And so I started doing all the songs with Richie for Horrible Histories. And so mm. that became that became the thing, really, for the last sort of 15, 20 years or so. That was just... Brilliant. What a catalogue yeah. of things to have written. Yeah. Well, for you and the 180,000 other Jews in this country, <laughs> yeah. we will put the producers into the time capsule with great pleasure. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, Dave. So we've got the one thing you'd like to forget from your life. Yes. Um, there's been a bit of a theme running through this, hasn't there, Mike? It's, uh, well, I like to think a comic theme, which is yeah, nice. I like the comic theme, but they also the, the, the religious theme as well yeah. is a little thing. And so the thing that I want to get rid of mm. is um, certainty. Certainty is, I think, one of the worst blights, really, on, on, on our lives. And... Um, mm. And again, I was thinking a little bit more about this, and I hadn't really thought about it until this week, and that we've been watching the news this week, and there have been two very sort of separate stories running parallel to each other. So you've got the unfolding horrors of Israel and Gaza and Palestine on mm. one side, and then you've got this inquiry into the British government's handling of covid so you've got these two stories that are completely separate. And you see them on the news, here's the COVID inquiry, here's Israel. And you think, well, you know, there isn't a link. But actually, it struck me this week that there is, there is one phrase that links it. And it was, a, it was a sentence that was said by Michael Gove before the Brexit vote. Mm. And it resonated so much. It was one of the most powerful moments. They had some journalist and they had him live and they had, I don't know, David Cameron and someone else. So they had sort of pro and anti-Europe. Mm. And David Cameron said something about, well, you know, if this happens, you know, the economists have said this will happen and we'll lose this money and da 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 da, da. And Michael Gove said, you know what, well, we've had enough of experts. Uh. And that phrase 
And, the, and I remember somebody was kind of doing a kind of survey of the audience. The audience was sort of clicking their pro or anti at that point. And then at that moment, the anti-Europe thing surged. And that phrase, we've had enough of experts. Yeah. And in the moment that you hear that, and it's possible only now to look back on that and COVID and how the government responded to COVID. And it was just, this is what happens when you have enough of experts. We don't listen to people anymore. And no. it's that phrase, people have stopped listening. And I think that's, you know, 50 years I've been engaged with this whole Israel-Palestine thing. I've been, yeah, yeah. I've done gigs, I've done been, I've been part of peace movements, I've done all this thing. I've got people that I know, close family or friends and people who've lived in Israel, some of them are very left-wing peace activists, some of the very right-wing settlement people. I've got Muslim community that I'm very close to in mm -hmm. North London. And so this is just me, one person. I know people on every side. And there's a point where each of these groups has just gone, I've had enough, I'm not listening anymore. And mm. and I just, and, and then I, you know, I've been, it's been really painful the last few sure. weeks, really. Absolutely yeah. painful. And I, and I thought, yeah, certainty. And then this coming up talking to you, I thought, what do I want to get? Little? Well, certainty, I know for sure. And I thought, yeah. maybe I'm as bad, mate. You know, in my certainty that certainty is wrong. No, I don't know. I mean, the wonderful thing I think about experts is that generally they are not certain. Generally, they put forward an idea. This is a That's, theory. Yeah. This is a possibility. I think it may be this. And, yeah. and people don't say it's absolutely this. It's That's only a, people yeah. with dogma that do that. Experts are never certain. Scientists yeah. never say this is absolutely certain. Maybe maths, one or two you know, physics laws and things. But yeah. generally they say, well, at the moment we think this. That's a really, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but now you mentioned it, yeah, yeah, these certain people are, and, and the way that that's exploited, and there must be something, I don't know what it is about us as humans, where we can only take so much uncertainty in our brains or something or whatever, yeah. and we just yeah. have to go, sorry, I'm not talking to you now. And, you know, and I have, I have fallen out. I've had two very close friends that mm. I've fallen out within the last 10 years. On the, again, on both uh, extreme sides, they were both nice friends and good people to be around. Mm, and one yeah. became very anti-Semitic, one became very Islamophobic. And, you know, it's painful. I, 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 it's like I, I grieved for losing those people. Mm. The great thing I think about getting older ought to be that you are more willing to go, well, am I right I've always thought this, is it right? Yeah. And to look at it and to question your own certainty. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and so I've spent, you know, I usually churn out an article when, when a war happens because they do happen <laughs> a lot. So, so let me just explain, because I'm, I'm an expert, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no more an expert than you, but I've got the experience. I've been going through this for 50 years. But at the start of this latest one, I just thought, there's really nothing that I can write now. Well, what's the point of it? People are just going to read it and yeah. say, yes, but this. Or I'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I accept You're right that. or you're wrong. Yes. I yes. know it does make you feel hopeless, really, yeah. doesn't it? You know, when you look at it and you go, oh, well, I can see yeah. where these people are coming from, but I can also see where these people are coming from. And, yeah. and what they need to do is to say, so we're both suffering. We need to look out for each other, not just only be concerned with ourselves. Yeah. Mm. And to just come full circle, I suppose, you know, 
comedy is the place for that. And uh, if, yeah. if there's one thing that I would just like to mention, I was very lucky. I had a, a, a job that I had to do, had to do, what a lovely job, was <laughs> watch two hours of Billy Connolly talking about comedy, <laughs> which was one of the nicest jobs I've ever had. <laughs> but there's this a sort of little thing that he said. He had two letters and one was from uh, a woman in New Zealand, and I think another one was from a woman in uh, North America. And these were both women sort of in their 40s and 50s and things, and they both, both their letters said more or less the same thing, which was, you know, I've been looking after my elderly father. He's been very ill, and, you know, it's been really painful, and it was really terrible. But recently, you know, I was, I was sitting in the room, and I could hear him laughing his head off. And... <laughs> I went and I checked, and he was watching you doing comedy. And he tells his story. You know, it's just an extraordinary. There's sort of two people from across the world who just, mm. and, you know, said it's, I'm sort of welling up a bit here, just, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of uh, telling it really, but uh, it's comedy has that ability. How does it do it? I don't know. But, I don't know. You know, it sort of manages to. These two people from across the world who's going to, they both said, you know, that this was the best thing that had happened to their dads. I mean, I think maybe you're actually hitting it right on the head of the nail here, Dave, in as much as the great thing about comedy is that it makes you aware of your own frailties, your own stupidity. Yeah. You watch it and you see yourself reflected in it. Yeah. And actually, that's why it's an important thing. And that's why it's a powerful thing. Yeah. Because at the moment when people are certain and angry and nothing, can, like your parents saying, no, 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 don't make a joke about that. Yeah. There's nothing funny in that. Mm. To see the humour in it, it can change the world. Yeah. Gosh, well, there we go. What a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for your lack of certainty. I'm delighted to have had you as a guest. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Dave Cohen. Many thanks for giving us an hour of your time. If you can spare a few seconds more, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate or review this podcast and please do subscribe so you won't miss any new episodes as they're released. I and My Time Capsule are both on various social media platforms, but sadly not the one that's in between two platforms and lets you listen to the Hogwarts podcast. Or is that just fiction? Who knows? Still, do join us on the one you most enjoy and feel free to get in touch. The theme tune that is accompanying this verbiage spewing from my mouth was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music and is available to download or stream on Spotify. Just search My Time Capsule The Theme Tune, which is what, boldly, we've named it. This was a cast-off production for Acast, and our producer was the highly talented John Fenton Stevens. Right, time for a joke. An 80-year-old woman, thanks to the wonders of modern science, finally has the baby she's wanted all her life, a little baby boy. Of course, her younger sister comes to visit her immediately, very excited to see her new nephew. Well, she says, where is he? And the woman says, but... I'll show you him later. And the woman says, no, no, don't be ridiculous. I've come from the other side of London. I want to see the baby boy. Where is he? She says, look, don't worry. Have some tea and some cake and I'll show him to you later. 
Her sister, by this point, is furious. No, she says, no, I want to see the baby now. I've travelled miles for this, and I've waited all my life for you to have a baby. Where is he? And a woman says, look, I'll show him to you when he starts to cry. And a woman says, what? Well, why are you going to wait until he starts to cry? And the other woman says, well, I've forgotten where I put him. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.